Maybe it's because I'm now in my 30s, but I feel like I am being absolutely bombarded with things that are telling me I can look younger, feel younger, preserve whatever youth is left. I think it's fair to say that we as humans are obsessed with aging and finding ways to not age. Deboki, am I out of line here? No, I I totally agree. And I also watch enough Real Housewives to know that there are a lot of very extreme things that people have come up with that they claim will help people fight aging. So what is aging exactly? And what causes it? Are any of those products in your newsfeed actually going to keep you from aging? And will there ever be a day where scientists can stop us from aging? Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Sam Jones, and I am joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. Sam and I are going to start off today's episode with a surprisingly tricky question. What is aging? Is it days on a calendar? The number of wrinkle lines on your forehead? We called up Laura Niedernhofer at the University of Minnesota to find out. Laura is a professor in the Department of Biochemistry, Molecular Biology, and Biophysics, and the director of the Institute on the Biology of Aging and Metabolism. The joke we make about aging is we all know what it looks like, but we aren't able to precisely define it. It's a tricky business. So what we do have in the field of aging is what we call the hallmarks of aging. So there seems to be biologic changes that are near universal. And so one of those changes is the accumulation of damage to a number of different parts of the cell. But we believe that the damage to the DNA or the genome is one of the key drivers of aging. Your genome is another word for all of your genes. And your genes are made up of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. DNA is made up of molecules called nucleotides, specifically the nucleotide bases adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine. These are often just referred to as ATCG. So your genes are just sequences of A's, T's, C's, and G's, and they code for RNA, which then codes for different proteins. So yeah, your DNA is essential. You do not want it to get messed up. The sole job of DNA is to maintain your genetic code, which defines who you are and how all your cells work in unison to make you a complete person. DNA damage would be the chemical or radiation addition of extra atoms onto your DNA. And that messes with the code so that things could change. When it comes to things that can damage our DNA, the list is unfortunately quite long. But Laura split them into two categories for us. Damage that's endogenous, meaning it's caused by things already in our bodies, and damage that's caused by our environment. A good example of an environmental one is the sun. A classic one is the UV component or ultraviolet component of sunlight. And so this can directly reach the DNA in the cells of your skin, and this will damage it through just radiation. And to illustrate how significant this is, if you are not able to remove that damage through DNA repair, 
it increases your skin cancer risk by 10,000 fold. So it's really a significant source of DNA damage. Another classic one is products through smoking. Cigarette smoke is disgusting. And Sam, you can't see it, but she is nodding her head in agreement. (laughs) It's true, I am. Cigarette smoke is estimated to have over 7,000 different chemical compounds in it, many of which are toxic. And some of those compounds can damage the DNA in your lung cells. Now, let's talk about the endogenous things, things that are already in our bodies that can damage our DNA. I'd bet it's stuff that you wouldn't normally think of as damaging. Definitely not. I have a bit of background in this, and sometimes I even forget. So it turns out that the DNA in our cells is actually not stable in our oxygen-rich and water-rich environment. So it's pretty scary because we can't live without those things, right? (laughs) Our bodies are made up of about a trillion cells, and every day in each cell, there's around 40,000 endogenous DNA damage events. And our bodies clean up almost all of it. How unbelievable is that? And how do we do it? We have five major DNA repair pathways, and each one of them is focused on a different type of DNA damage. So the mechanisms are a little bit different between these different pathways, but there's some common steps that we could talk about. So in the example of UV-induced DNA damage caused by the sunlight, there's a pathway called nucleotide excision repair. And so what it does is it scans your genome and your skin cells looking at the entire content of DNA, and it's going to look for any patch of distortion of this beautifully elegant helical structure that we have for our DNA. Imagine a stepladder, and you twist it, and that would be your beautiful DNA helix. But what happens if you broke a step? All of a sudden, it it doesn't have the same sort of beautiful structure anymore. It starts puckering and breaking and bulging out. And this is what your body can recognize and repair. So this is a really good signal that there's something wrong in your genome and it's time to call in the DNA repair army. That DNA repair army is made up of dozens of different proteins in your cell that will first check that there is in fact a chemical alteration to your DNA. And if there is, cut it out. From there, the opposite strand of DNA will be used as a template. Remember, your DNA is a double helix. It has two strands that are paired up. So using the opposite strand, your DNA repair army will replace the nucleotides that were cut out. Fortunately, most of the time, the DNA repair army flawlessly does its job. But what about when DNA damage repair goes wrong or doesn't happen? If your cell misses the damage, it'll likely go on continuing to be its cell self, doing things that cells normally do, like replicate. In that replication process, it might just swap in random, inaccurate nucleotides to replace whatever bit of DNA is damaged. As cells divide, those inaccuracies, or what Laura calls misinformation events, start to build up. And eventually, if you get enough of them, you end up with genetic mutations. And mutations are the cause of cancer, period. So the link between DNA damage and cancer was the first and foremost tying DNA damage to a health impact. Aging is a much newer consequence. But to me, it's pretty profound because we all age. And there is really strong evidence that DNA damage 
when not repaired, will contribute to the aging of virtually every organ system in your body, not just the skin. Laura and her colleagues are interested in studying the impact of DNA damage on aging. And to do that, they take away a cell's ability to repair DNA damage and then see what happens. And then you have an exaggerated situation where you're getting more damage than a healthy, normal cell or mouse or other model system. I worked with a number of great colleagues across the globe where we took away DNA repair pathways and just observed what happens in a cell, what happens in a mouse. And there's unfortunately even people who have inherited defects in DNA repair. And so they also give us a very visual image of what happens if you have too much DNA damage. So we think of these patients who have what we call genome instability disorders. So they have an inherited defect in DNA repair, they're not repairing properly, and this leads to lots of, of, of health implications. We think of them as in a canary in a coal mine. It really, to me, is accelerated aging. It's what's gonna to happen to all of us, it just happens much, much faster. And they do have higher risk of cancer, much earlier onset of cancer, and virtually every sign of premature aging affecting every organ system. Laura has primarily used mouse models for her work. She and her colleagues made genetic changes to mice that got rid of their DNA repair army, and it had a massive impact. We created mice that age six times faster than normal, and they spontaneously develop virtually every age related disease that you can think about. So they get osteoporosis, they have disc degeneration, so they get a curved spine and lower back pain, they get cognitive impairment, they go deaf, they go blind, they have heart disease. So now what we're trying to do is to be really specific about this. We're knocking out DNA repair in one organ or cell type at a time to determine the impact. And we were shocked to learn that, for instance, if you knock out DNA repair in beta cells, which produce insulin in our pancreas, we actually can cause type 2 diabetes, so adult-onset diabetes, just by removing DNA repair pathways. One of the things that became apparent recently is that a response to DNA damage, as well as a number of different types of stress in a cell, is for that cell to activate a pathway that will drive it into senescence. Senescent cells are cells that have stopped growing and doing normal cell things, like converting nutrients into energy or signaling to other cells. I like to think of senescent cells as cells on hold indefinitely. Senescence is a great thing because basically it's a very potent tumor suppressor. It will tell a cell that's damaged you are not to copy yourself again because that would risk mutations and potentially cancer. But although senescence is a great mechanism for preventing mutations that could lead to cancerous tumors, senescence can also be problematic. Senescent cells secrete proteins that are inflammatory, meaning they essentially send an SOS to your body's immune system, which then comes to clear them out. It's kind of similar to how your immune system clears out viruses or dangerous bacteria. But here's the problem. As you age, your immune system stops working as well as it did when you were younger. And that means senescent cells aren't getting cleared out as often or as easily. 
and these senescent cells start to accumulate, and then they drive chronic inflammation. So there is hard and fast proof that senescent cells contribute to virtually every age-related disease as well as aging itself. And this is a way that I think we could attenuate the bad response to DNA damage is trying to help the body get rid of these senescent cells. I am really excited about senescent cells. They are sometimes now considered a hallmark of aging. And it's probably one of the most druggable hallmarks of aging. So there are lots of new approaches to get, remove senescent cells from the body. These are called senolytic drugs or to modify their inflammatory behavior, which are called senomorphic drugs. So there are clinical trials ongoing already with these drugs. And so what I'm excited about is to see how they work because there's trials even on Alzheimer's disease, and that would be incredible if these senolytics could potentially modify Alzheimer's. We need certainly new approaches to that disease as well as many other age-related diseases. So my guess would be we'll know the answer in about five years, which is super exciting. So cool, right? Yeah, that's definitely something to look forward to. But we also wanted to understand the fundamentals this field is built on. So we talked to researchers about the work they're doing to define, from a scientific standpoint, what age is. Some researchers are interested in connecting age to epigenetic changes, which are reversible modifications to your DNA. So epigenetic changes don't tamper with your genes. Instead, they change the likelihood that a gene will be transcribed from DNA into RNA. In other words, they impact a gene's activity, which can, of course, have a bunch of downstream effects. DNA methylation is an example of an epigenetic change. It's when a methyl group, which is three hydrogens bonded to a carbon, is added to your DNA. To learn a bit more about how DNA methylation is related to determining age, I reached out to a friend from graduate school, Tina Wong, who's currently a scientist at Johnson & Johnson, studying neurodegeneration, which is, of course, an age-related disease. Tina's interest in aging research started over a decade ago. I guess I had been fascinated by the idea that you can measure aging besides more than just the calendar days that pass by. When she was in graduate school, Tina became interested not just in the possibility that we could use DNA methylation changes to measure our true, I put that in air quotes, true age, but that across species, those changes might be consistent. I mean, if you go back far enough, we all come from a common ancestor. So she set out to answer this evolutionary question, starting with dogs. Dogs are the best. I say, as someone with two dogs. <laughs> we should also mention that no dogs were harmed in the collection of any of this data. Tina loves dogs just as much as me, and actually also has two of them. Her dog, Belly, was an inspiration for this study because when Tina adopted Belly, the shelter told her that Belly was maybe eight months old. Tina says there's absolutely no way. Belly was at least two, maybe even three years old. And Tina thought, wouldn't it be awesome to use DNA methylation data to more accurately figure out Belly's age? Tina was also interested in looking at changes in DNA methylation in dogs versus other model systems because dogs get a lot of the same care as humans, unlike mice or cells in a Petri dish. Imagine if we gave cells in a Petri dish the same medical attention as dogs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> 
Dogs represent a really interesting organism relative to humans. They are like the only other species that have as much medical care as we do. And they also have very short lives so that if if you were able to develop something that measures age in dogs, and given the fact that like dogs have a huge variety of lifespan that's like related to their size, related to their breed, they would represent a really valuable model organism to learn what we can actually do to maybe enhance our longevity or learn about the factors that actually affect aging. Tina found that when comparing patterns of DNA methylation between dogs, humans, and mice, there was even more overlap than she expected, and that based on methylation changes, she could accurately predict calendar dog years and convert them to human and mouse years and vice versa. And when she looked into what genes were being impacted by those changes in methylation, she found they were mostly involved in animal development, genes that help us grow and become fully functioning mammals. My study maybe can show that there are indeed regions that are commonly affected by aging that are shared between mammals and then maybe give more weight to the idea that you could use DNA methylation to measure age, aging for real. I find this work so interesting, but it sure isn't easy because humans live a very, very long time. So getting controlled data from someone across their lifetime is impossible. The best way that you can measure aging is to see if you live longer. When you start applying these methylation age predictors, they are always in these cohorts that have been collected like decades ago. And then they're trying to see that if like this age prediction influences your survival probability at the end. And I think that's like why it's really hard to map these same things over to humans because at the end of the day, you can't enroll people in this double blind placebo versus not placebo trial and then actually see if they live longer. Tina told us that she hopes this study and others like it will ultimately reveal a connection between changes in DNA methylation as we age and the health and physiology of the cells in our bodies. Making that connection could open up a whole new world of aging-related research. Could you alter methylation patterns and slow aging? Maybe even reverse it? No, that's a little too sci-fi. But this is a very cool field, and I'm excited to see where it goes. So to bring things full circle, let's talk about the gimmicky stuff that people try out in the name of anti-aging. I'm thinking about stuff like diamond face creams that Real Housewives swear by or other very strange and often very expensive treatments. Like Sam and I mentioned at the top of the episode, we are inundated by ads for things that reverse aging by 10 years, like lotions that claim they're the fountain of youth. It's so annoying. (laughs) Well, Laura says, don't be fooled by that fountain of youth talk. There are some good products out there that, but you have to stop and think, is it really penetrating my skin or is it just plumping it up right now? Or um, I think a lot of it is are very temporary effects. You can see that in, in dermatology, there's very few FDA approved products. And those are the ones that we know there's really good science behind. So in not-so-shocking news, a cream that you smear on your face will not stop you from aging. It could possibly make your skin look better, but it will not rewind time. A cream on the surface of your skin isn't a panacea, it's a temporary fix. 
And Laura says completely stopping humans from aging isn't actually the goal. At least it certainly isn't right now. Scientists, to the best of her knowledge, are not thinking they're going to get people to live for hundreds of years looking like they did when they were 25. They want us to live a long time, yeah. But most of all, they want us to spend the years we have as healthy as possible. I believe very firmly that there are ways that we can keep people healthier in their old age. So basically, this goes back to developing therapeutics that target those hallmarks of aging. It's going to be really tricky to get rid of endogenous DNA damage, right? We can't get rid of oxygen and we can't get rid of water. But what we can do is impact how a cell is going to respond to it. So if you think of your genome, it's made up of 3 billion base pairs. So a little damage here or there is not going to be the end of the world. It's how your cells respond to it. And so if we can dampen that response, I think we'll have avenues for stemming age-related diseases. Now, are we going to stop aging? No, never entirely. I don't believe it for a second. And I don't think we're going to extend human health spans ridiculous amounts. I just, I really don't. But I think we can keep people healthier in old age. And that's what our big priority is. All right, hopping right into it. So my tiny show and tell this week has to do with regeneration. The focus is the axolotl, which is a very cute salamander. In every photo, I feel like it looks like it's smiling. Definitely look it up. It will make you smile. I guarantee it will make you smile. So beside being very cute, (laughs) they're really good at regenerating bits of their brains after any sort of injury to their brains. And up until now, scientists were really only looking at structures in their brains after or during regeneration and not what was happening within their brain cells. So now, scientists from a few different labs have come together to analyze gene expression in regenerating axolotl brains at the single cell level. So this is called single cell transcriptomics. So it's essentially looking at, within one cell, all of the genetic changes that are happening during regeneration in this case. They did this single cell level analysis and then compared what they found to regenerating mammal brains to try and understand why the axolotl brain is just so much more capable of regeneration than mammalian brains. They found a lot of stuff. I mean, you are looking at individual cells. That's a lot of data. But particularly, they found that the axolotl brains were able to reactivate the production of new neurons using similar pathways to what they would have used in their super young brain. So it's essentially like if we somehow had a brain injury and then we were able to tap into pathways we used when we were babies and we were, or fetuses, and we were generating all of these neurons, that's kind of what the axolotl is able to do as an adult, which is very cool. So why did I think this was interesting? Well, in our episode on regeneration a couple months ago, we talked a lot about how scientists are trying to study excellent regenerators. So that includes, you know, planaria, the axolotl, hydra, to essentially learn how humans might be able to harness that same ability. And yeah, this is another study that's adding to that growing knowledge base. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to share. Yeah, that's so wild. 
Well, I have a far less adorable animal to talk about, uh, <laughs> which are cockroaches. Um, and specifically, this is a story about cockroaches being very good at the thing that, like, unfortunately, they're very good at, which is surviving. So in the 1930s, in Lord Howe Island in Australia, it was thought to have lost one of its important residents, the wood-feeding cockroach, thanks to rats that had been brought to the island in 1918. I feel like this is like one of those classic, we brought in these one creatures probably because we they thought it was going to do something or maybe they just accidentally were on board and then they wiped out all of these cockroaches. And on the one hand, that feels like great news. Um, But on the other hand, cockroaches are actually very important for the ecosystem. They're really um, great for recycling nutrients. So they are kind of important in that way. And so scientists have been looking to see if any of like these species had survived in nearby islands. And they had found kind of closely related species, but they were genetically different. So it seemed like, you know, this another tragic story of extinction, uh, except recently a biology student named Maxim Adams from the University of Sydney was visiting um, Lord Howe Island, I think, for research. And they just happened to turn over this rock that was under this one tree. And there happened to be a Lord Howe Island wood feeding cockroach under it. And there's like a whole family actually of them. And at first, apparently they were like so surprised. They're like, it can't be it. But then they were like, yeah. I think this is it. Um, so it's good that they were able to find them because it turns out, like like I said, you know, cockroaches are so important for the ecosystem and scientists have been thinking about trying to reintroduce other species to the island because they're so important. Um, but now they don't have to because it turns out this cockroach is, is doing just fine. It's alive. That's awesome. So is it, it's on the island, it's doing its thing. Are they going to try to propagate it or make it, like, are they trying to build it up or, or they feel like, It exists. It's obviously doing fine. We're not worried now. That's a great question. I don't actually know. Yeah, I actually don't have any idea about that. And I don't see anything in the article um, that I'm reading. But that's that would be super interesting. Because if they're like super important and you want to know that they're alive... But like how many, how many is enough? How many cockroaches is enough? Is it enough to have them just under this one rock? Uh, Should we try to make more of them? (laughs) Should we just let them be? I think it's all, yeah, it's all good stuff to to think about. (laughs) Of course, you don't want to swing the pendulum in the exact opposite direction where now you have tons of cockroaches. And now the question again is how do we get rid of them? But it's tricky that all of the, the ecosystem conservation what is the perfect balance? It's tough. And we're making it yeah. harder as humans with climate change. Yep. So, whoops. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. This week's script was written by Sam, who is also our exec producer, and was edited by me and by Matt Radcliffe, who's the executive producer of ACS Productions. It was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. Our artwork was created by Derek Bressler. Thanks so much to Laura Niedernhofer and Tina Wong for joining us. If you have thoughts, questions, ideas about future Tiny Matters episodes, send us an email at tinymatters@acs.org. You can find me on Twitter at okidoki underscore bokey. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam J. Science. See you next time.